Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. The past few weeks, we've seen the federal government taking measures to stop coronavirus that would have been almost unimaginable not too long ago. The president declared a national emergency. At the state and local level, more and more mayors and governors have declared stay-at-home orders. The U.S.-Mexico border is closed to non-essential travel. Same with the border to Canada. Most travel from the U.S. to Europe has been suspended. Probably even more things have changed since I recorded this podcast on Monday evening. Does any of this federal response make sense? Does the state response make sense? Are we acting based on data, logic, and reason? And what should we be doing? To get a really expert perspective on this, I spoke to Dr. Farzad Mostashari. During the Obama administration, Farzad was the National Coordinator for Health and Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services. Before that, he worked for the Centers for Disease Control in the New York office, focusing on New York City public health. Now he's the founder and CEO of Alidade, a healthcare technology company. Farzad is one of the clearest and most rational people that I know, and I knew he would have a lot to say on this topic. Farzad, from very early in this crisis, and I mean very early, you were loudly saying on Twitter, and I was following you closely, that we didn't have a coherent national response strategy, even at the conceptual level of knowing what we were trying to do. Have your worries on that front been at all alleviated, or do you still think we have a lack of coherence? Oh, my God. No, I wish. No, we, we, we don't have a plan, and there's no clear criteria on when – what are we trying to do in each community at what stage, and when are we in containment, and we're trying to do contact tracing and stamp out the sparks as they're coming in and keep it out, and when are we trying to do – social distancing and, and mitigation? And when are we going full bore on uh, suppression and doing these extreme measures? And when are we going to get out, right? So we have a plan that says a 15-day plan to slow the growth. What happens on day 16, Noah? I was hoping you were going to tell me that. I mean, you know, you're asking the wrong guy. One of us is actually a public health specialist. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, on day 16, you know what it's going to look like? It's going to look bad. 
if we had done a miraculous job of slowing down transmission, we still would be seeing mounting cases of hospitalizations, ICU cases, and deaths on day 15 purely based on the people who are already infected. So I think we have to have a plan that says these are the measures, these are the data points that we look to to decide when we take these extreme economy crippling measures and this is when we get out of them. And we don't have that right now, but not only do we not have the plan, we don't have the plan to get to the plan to get the data that we would need to be able to make that plan effective, right? Because we're doing testing and the promise here has been testing, more tests. Everyone who wants a test can get it. And let me tell you, my friends who are in the public health world are tearing their hair out saying, we don't just need more tests. We need to get actual insights from those tests. We need, for example, to know among all the people how many tests are positive, what percent of tests are positive. But right now we're only getting the positives. Secretary Azar said, I don't know how many tests are done. We don't know how many tests are being done. So when we see an increase in the number of positives, is that that the infection's getting worse or that we're testing more people? So you've described a very, very grim situation. Now, you have seen public health issues from a broad range of perspectives. You've seen it um, as a New York City public health official. So that was the local. You've seen it from the federal level at HHS. Um, now you're seeing it from the private sector. You're almost uniquely qualified, it seems to me, to say what we could realistically do now. So let's be as concrete as we possibly can and productive. What would be your top, say, three recommendations to our national leadership of what to do? Yeah. Let me focus on the testing issue for the three recommendations, because I do think that's the biggest priority is for us to get some value out of the testing that's beginning to roll out. Number one, we need to set up what's called a zero survey. And this is something that um, as an epidemic intelligence service officer of the CDC stationed in New York City, we had this outbreak of West Nile virus that killed a bunch of people. And we said, but we don't know if it's really deadly to old people or if a lot of people get infected and only a small number die. So we need to go literally door to door (laughs) to collect blood from people to test their blood to see if they've been exposed to this virus. That was in 1999. We need to do that in New Rochelle now. So that's number one. So that set up a zero study, which is literally a door-to-door. Door-to-door. Where you gather data from each individual person who is infected and from those who are not, were not visibly infected. Correct. And evaluate that data. That's right. And the takeaway you'll get from that is what? What will you learn from that study? We'll learn of 100 people infected with the virus, how many end up going to the emergency room, being hospitalized, being in an ICU, and being dead. Because let me tell you, that number is not 2.3%, and it's probably not 1%. It's probably smaller. The fatality rate, the infection fatality rate, Mm -hmm. is probably much lower. And that's important. Why? Because what's going to save us is herd immunity. At the end of the day, we have to use the fact that people are immune from this, whether through vaccination or through infection. And the good news would be if there are a lot of unnoticed infections of people who are now immune and can dampen 
the spread of this outbreak. Walk me through this. So we do this close, fine-grained analysis. It tells us with much more accuracy than we presently know of the number of people who are exposed to the virus, how many will be hospitalized, and how many will die. Then, with that information, we can make a better prediction about at what point we can start relying on people who are immune to start getting back into the world. Is that right? And then we need an antibody test to test if people had been exposed, because there are lots of people out there on your hypothesis who've been exposed and haven't gotten sick and now aren't going to get the virus again, uh, assuming that it works like other viruses and not like the common cold where you can keep on getting it. That's right. So this would give us the data, which would then move us in the direction of enabling what? What's the picture of the world where we've got this data and where we have an antibody test and we can say, okay, you know, Noah's been exposed, but he didn't get sick. So he can now go out there and do what? If I'm a doctor, I can go back to work as a doctor. If I'm running an ordinary shop, can I go back and work in my ordinary shop now because I'm not going to infect anybody? Exactly. The, The first use of this is honestly to inform our models of the world. If we're going to say that this thing is going to go on until 30% of the population or 20% of the population is infected, well, how many ICU beds is that? It's a very different story if every, you know, 10 people who get infected, one of them needs an ICU bed versus if it's 100 versus if it's 1,000. So the first thing it informs is the state of the situation we're in right now where we desperately need to know and do not know what the impact of this is going to be on our healthcare resources and facilities and the surge capacity, because we don't know the ratio between infected and the cases. This is super helpful. So basically, number one priority is you can't plan if you don't know what actually is going to happen in the world. And this information is so basic to figuring out what's going to happen that we can't do intelligent planning really without it. Correct. And I was talking to a a modeler from a university near you who was saying, I don't know that the future could go, you know, many, many different directions. And I said, what is the piece of data you need to make your models have smaller variance in terms of the outcomes? And she said, what I need more than anything else is I need to know the percent infected. So, okay, let's do that. The other application of it is what you said, which is, and some have posited this, well, maybe we could have, you know, green <laughs> green bracelets for people who are already immune and they could end up, you know, helping run the society while the rest of us are are in lockdown. I don't know about that use of the, the antibody testing, but let's start with the epidemiologic uses. So that's number one. Number two is we need to know within a given city whether we're seeing widespread disease outbreak or not. And right now, in the absence of any guidance, in the absence of data, individual governors and mayors and others have made individual decisions. And I'm telling you, in some places, it was too late. And I can also tell you, in some places, it's too early. And this is the problem with the germ of truth that the kind of cynics are having out there of like, oh, this is much ado. And we're, we're overreacting. Well, in some cities, maybe we are, but we don't know which. And so we need to have a systematic way of using the tests that we have and using the information we've already collected to be able to know, is this virus spreading? Is it at the point where there are sparks we can stamp out with contact tracing, or it's too late to start to stamp out sparks, the whole house is on fire and you need to just turn the hose on and and slow it down and make it go a little less fast. 
And how would we find out this information in number two? If number one is door-to-door study, number two is just massive testing, I take it. Uh, Actually, it's not the number of tests. It's how you do the tests. Hmm. Okay. Tell me more about that. How do you do the tests? Yeah, the big problem is that we have two different public health reporting systems in this country. And if you just think about it, it kind of makes sense, Noah, right? You go into the doctor's office and they draw your blood and they send it to the lab. The lab then gets a positive result and they report it to the public health authorities, right? That is the laboratory arm of public health reporting. What information does the lab have about you? Almost none, I take it. They just know that it's your blood sample. Yeah, they know your name and they know your date of birth and maybe your address, maybe not, depending, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know your symptoms. They don't know your exposures. They don't know if you're hospitalized or going to be hospitalized. And which is why the CDC in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the flagship publication of the CDC, had their first case report of 4,200 plus cases, positive cases in in the United States. They said, we do not know the hospitalization status of half of them. Wow. So we didn't even know the age of 10% of the positive cases. So giving more testing done in LabCorp and Quest and hospital labs that end up flooding the public health system with cases that we know nothing about is not helpful. It's not getting more testing out there. It's we want to have tests done where the laboratory results are tied to the key clinical and epidemiologic data for us to make sense of it. So that key data is, is this person part of a known cluster? What is their exposure? Did they travel? Do they know someone Do they who has it? That we should ask people basically on a form at the same time as they're having their blood drawn, the form should be filled out. This is the simplest form of this, right? And we should also ask them, oh, do you have any symptoms? When did those symptoms start? With those two pieces of data and the person's age and county, I can now construct an epi curve. And I can tell you with those pieces of data, is the outbreak in this city getting better or worse? But I need both parts of that data. I need the clinical and epidemiologic risk factor data, and I need the lab data. So where can we get both of those pieces of data? We have to set up sentinel surveillance sites where at the cost of getting the lab test, you also will have to fill out the form. So this is where not just blasting the tests out there, but actually setting up some planful places where in an emergency room, every person who comes in with fever cough is going to get tested. Or in a doctor's office, we set up doctor's offices, we set up sentinel testing sites. Or at a drive-through clinic, a drive-through testing site, we make sure that we collect both pieces of information. That's how this is going to get done. And right now, I have heard roughly nobody create an actual funded plan to resource the development of dedicated testing sites that collect the information at scale sufficient to answer these questions. Why, Farzad? Why is it the case that if something is as straightforward as you're describing it as being the Sentinel sites, and I take it it's called Sentinel because it gives you an early warning of what's going on, or in this case, a not so early warning. Why is it the case that no one is proposing that? And if I could make the question even a little meaner, you know, you were national coordinator for health IT for the Federal Department of Health and Human Services in the Obama administration. 
Why was this not part of what your team or the broader HHS community was trying to have in a contingency plan for the day that you, you knew perfectly well would someday come where a crisis like this would break out? Because we as humans lurch from panic to panic in periods of complacency. That's what we do. We all do that. And there are some more extreme examples of where we let complacency take root. But I don't think anyone is blameless in forgetting. You just forget what it feels like to be in this moment. Like we should make a list of the shit we're going to fix during the period of complacency between panic and panic. Like we should make that Mm -hmm. list Mm -hmm. and we should now, (laughs) and we should just stick to it for God's sake and get it done. What's the barrier though to to simply a national edict from CDC that says, hey, everybody in the country who's testing, you must simultaneously fill out this form, which we're posting online right now, and you must ask the patient about the progress of his or her symptoms. I mean, it sounds like of all the interventions we've, you know, we can imagine, that sounds like a pretty inexpensive one, except for the coordination of the data, which I recognize would take some work. So, so look, the U.S. system really does delegate public health to state and local officials. The CDC is an incredibly powerful institution, but mostly through guidance, yes, funding, uh, but expertise. And ultimately, they need to be the ones who are front and center, who are speaking with the voice of evidence-based public health to the American people about what the strategy should be. And let me ask you, when was the last time the CDC was at the podium at the coronavirus task force? It's been some days. It's been many, many, many days. So we have not heard from Ann Shuckett. But to be fair, the CDC doesn't have to be at the, I mean, that is a symbolic meeting, but the CDC doesn't have to be at the podium to issue a guidance on this, especially if it sees itself as, among other things, the coordinator of national data. I mean, if we had the head of the CDC here and asked her, you know, why haven't you done this? What would she be saying? I, I don't know. I don't know, Noah. And to me, one of my proudest career experiences was being at the CDC. It's a fantastic institution with thousands of incredible experts. And I just do not understand why they have not been front and center and leading in the way that they know how to in this experience. I just, I'm, I'm baffled and I don't have a good answer for you. We'll be back in just a moment. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. 
The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. You've given us one and two suggestions, super clear. What's your third biggest recommendation? So the third piece of this is a system that I did play some part in really designing or creating some 20 years ago, which has now become commonplace practice in public health, which is called syndromic surveillance. And this is saying, remember I talked about how long it takes and the data problems of getting a lab specimen confirmed with, say, coronavirus. The idea here was, well, people go to the to live their lives and they, they register in the emergency room and there's a piece of data collected for that. And they go buy, you know, medications in the zinc at the pharmacy and, and it goes beep at the counter. And you could gather up all those little bits and drabs of the exhaust of administrative data that governs our lives. And you could actually put it to purpose, putting your finger on the pulse of a city's health in real time and detect at that time, we were thinking bioterrorism. Now we're thinking coronavirus pandemic. And it turns out we spent hundreds of millions of dollars. And as part of the health information technology transformation that I helped push, we required hospitals to report every emergency room visit to these state public health systems in syndromes where you could group them and say, does the person come in have a GI syndrome or a respiratory syndrome or a flu syndrome? And so we have this system. You don't have to build it now. You don't have to recreate it. We've spent a lot of money and resolved all the governance issues and state and local, blah, blah, blah. And we're not using it. And again, you're going to ask me, why aren't we using it? I don't know. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do not know. But the only place that has made that information publicly available is... New York City, it's literally the website that we built 15 years ago, still works. And you can go on that website. You can Google EpiQuery, E-P-I-Q-U-E-R-Y, syndromic surveillance. And you can go there and you can click on the box that says influenza-like illness or respiratory. And you can see the percent of all emergency room visits daily up until I think Friday, they have data in there now. And you can look at daily rates of emergency room visits in every emergency room in New York City, what percent of them 
or for respiratory syndrome or flu-like syndrome. And what you will see is that what has happened in the past two weeks has never happened in New York City before. I've been looking at this data for 20 years. Never, ever have I seen a spike in illness that sharp, that steep, that fast. 4,600 cases of respiratory illness or influenza-like illness presented to emergency rooms in New York City last Thursday. A year ago that day, it was 1,600. Almost a threefold increase in those visits. It is an incredibly powerful tool for seeing what is going on in the community. And is it actually, don't tell me that we have how many cases. Tell me, is it causing enough illness in the community to make a difference, to be seen in the data? And we have it in more than just New York City. We could look at it potentially in every state. And for reasons that I do not understand, that data is not currently the centerpiece of our surveillance and response to this outbreak. What am I not asking you about that you see over the horizon, going back to the national level, as a potential problem that we haven't yet flagged? And I'm asking you that not because of your expertise only, but because you flagged a lot of the problems that we've been seeing earlier than than other people did. So when you look now, two weeks or three weeks or even a few months down the road, what do you see as the most serious problems that are also not being discussed. I'm really interested in this confluence of politics and policy and data around when we go to these extreme measures and when we come out. And particularly if we're not able to mobilize suppression effectively enough that we can go back to reclaim containment. That's what we have to be able to do to get out of this crisis without 20, 30, 40, 50% of the population infected is we have to reclaim containment. We have to put out the fire and then really assemble crack teams of public health workers who can go around stamping out sparks much better than we've done before. And if we can't do that, then we will be continually faced over the next 18 months until a vaccine, hopefully, hopefully is developed, where we're going to be facing economic ruination and trying to decide, make those hard trade-offs between how much can we ease up and then see more people dying and then push back down again. And every policymaker is going to be having to make that, every elected official is going to be making that decision based on on their own environment. So I hope that we can reclaim containment. I really, really do. But if not, I think we're in for 18 months of what I fear will be somewhat haphazard decision-making around when to close, when to open, when to reclose, when to reopen, back and forth. Farzad, before I let you go, I do wonder, a lot of people are wondering, is there any hope here? You know, is it all doom and gloom? What are your thoughts on that? Earlier, I was much more freaked out. When no one was talking about it, I w- it was just freaking freaking me out. And now I'm actually much less freaked now that everyone's talking about it. 
Because what I am seeing is even in the absence of a plan, even in the absence of a strategy, even in the absence of data, I'm seeing massive behavior change in society. Each person, each company, each school, each mayor deciding for themselves, each person deciding for themselves that they're going to live life a little bit differently. I'm not seeing very much handshaking right now. I'm not going to any conferences. The airports are deserted. Like this stuff doesn't have to be perfect to work. And I think it's working. We don't know if it's working. We won't know probably for several weeks, at least under the best of circumstances. But I'm optimistic that it's working because the average number of contacts just has to come down. That's all we're trying to do to go from an effective reproductive number of 2.5 or not down to an R effective of less than one. Well, what that means is that if you had 10 contacts a week before, you want to get down to four on average. If you can do that, we'll beat this thing, right? The number of new infections that each person causes will be less than one and this thing will extinguish on its own if before, on average, you went to the gym five days a week and now you go no more than two. If everybody did that, this thing would snuff out. And I think some people are not doing it. Other people are doing it to a great, much greater extent. And on average, I really do think all of us acting individually are making a difference. So keep doing it, America. Despite all of the stuff I talked about, at the bottom line, what matters is, can we change our habits? And the, for me, the bright glimmer of hope here is Japan, actually, um, because Japan did not pump out a ton of testing. But th- what they did do is they embraced their sense of responsibility to each other. And uh, I think that is, in some ways, more feasible uh, for us to embrace than, you know, contact tracing, you know, tens of thousands of people in New York City every day. Well, if Americans can pull together by staying not together, then maybe they can accomplish exactly what you're, what you're talking about, Farza. Thank you for helping us not go completely off the rails, but simultaneously, thanks for the clarity and honesty and directness of your analysis. Thank you, Noah. Well, there you have it. Farzad Mostashari, whose whole career has been trying to leverage data for public health, is very worried that we do not have the kind of data that we need and that it's not entirely clear we can get it without a substantial change in policy. That said, he does not think that the world is over. And it's significant to my mind that somebody who was, in his own terms, freaking out about this a month ago, is now calmer than he was and does believe that our efforts at social distancing may be having good effects, imprecise and imperfect though they are. So it's a mixed picture. We could be doing a lot better. We could be doing this a lot more rationally. But we're not facing, in his view, the kind of existential threat that we cannot defeat based on the social distancing techniques that are presently being used. Until next time, be safe, take care of yourselves, maintain that distance. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To 
discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.